from Twib Nation. This is This Week in Mormons for the week of uh, basically July 1st through July 7th. And I am Tiffany Hales. I am one half of the Twib Sisters. And I am here today with a special guest that I'm going to interview. I have the infamous Hannah Syriac, who is a staff writer for the Deseret News. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Well, I am so excited to have you here because as we have discussed, Ariane and I, my sister, when we do our Twin Sisters podcast, we have covered a lot of your stories and it's kind of been a, a little goal to interview you. And so I'm glad that you agreed to come on and I appreciate that. So before we get to your interview... I just want to do a little host chat because we always start with a little bit of host chat. And last time that my sister and I recorded, I was uh, a couple of days away from leaving for girls camp. And my husband and I were going to girls camp to cook for girls camp. Now, he had never been to girls camp before. This is a gentleman who's been in the young men since... I think that's about the only calling he's ever had in his life, probably because he's perpetually about 14. So he relates very well. And so Girls Camp was a new experience for him. So before I kind of get into a little bit about my details of Girls Camp, Hannah, did you have the experience growing up of being able to attend Girls Camp? So I actually attended Girls Camp one time. Okay. Um, and I absolutely, I loved it. I thought okay. it was the greatest thing ever. Okay. Um, I, I I grew up in New England, so I just okay. remember going outside um, and seeing all the trees. It was one of my first camping experiences. I didn't camp a lot growing up, uh -huh. um, and I just loved singing all the songs. I was a bit older. I forget exactly how old I was, but it, it was I think it was right before college. Okay. and um, Or it might have been during college, actually. I don't remember. Um, and I just remember going swimming in the lake, having such a great time. I loved reading scriptures at night with all the girls, too. It was just one of those moments where I felt like, you know, I could really relate to a lot of the stories that people had to tell. Um, and we had really good bonding experiences. Oh, yeah. And that is exactly what Girls Camp is about. In fact, the the young women leaders were talking about, you know, how different the girls are when they're not at Girls Camp. And it takes them about 12 hours once they get at Girls Camp to kind of get out of themselves and start bonding and, and behaving in ways that they generally don't see them behave on a regular basis. And, uh, and it was fun to witness that and fun to watch that. And of course, my, my husband was just kind of blown away at how different it is just with a lot of spirituality and the singing the songs. And, you know, a couple nights they were singing songs around the campfire, just like what you said. And it, he was just like, really, this is what you do at girls camp. And I'm like, yes, this is what you do at girls camp. Did you ever sing the song Mormon Boy? Have you even ever yes. heard of the yes, song I Mormon did. Boy? <laughs> yes, I did. But the thing is, I actually didn't sing it at girls camp. Okay. Um, I started singing it with one of my friends a few weeks ago because we heard the story of how there was a group of international students who went to girls camp here. They were all members. They went to girls camp in Utah. And it was their first time hearing that song. So I had oh, to gosh. ask 
what is this song? And my friend taught it to me. She's in the Young Woman's President uh-huh. Senior Award. And we just started, and we've, we started singing it and we text each other the lyrics. So, Oh, I love that. Okay. I think this might be a good Deseret News story for you. You need to do a song on the history and origins of Mormon Boy and how often it is sung at girls camp because, I mean, it was just funny. Our girls were sitting around singing it. And as you know, it has like multiple verses to it. And I think it's been added to over the years. And, uh, and, and, and there was a twinge of them that was like, should we be saying Mormon boy? Are we allowed to say Mormon boy? Is this okay? And I'm like, yeah, it's girls camp. It's fine. Sing Mormon boy. <laughs> So I would attempt to sing it, but that would frighten all of our listeners because I am completely tone deaf. And so, you know, sometime I should go out there and see if there's like some recording somewhere out there that, you know, some quasi LDS person has done where they've recorded Mormon Boy that maybe you can find on Spotify or iTunes. I have no idea. If not yeah, that somebody would be awesome. I, I'd sing it too, but I, I would also horrify the listeners. <laughs> exactly. And we don't want to horrify the listeners. So let's just encourage the listeners. If you've never heard the song Mormon Boy, go look it up. Go see if you can find a rendition of it because it's great. So anyway, and the other interesting thing about my girls' camp was I have never been to girls' camp when it has been less than 90 degrees. It was freezing. We had a very cold, wet spring here in Idaho, which um, most of the Mountain West had a very cold, wet spring. And so I think the first day we were there, the high was in the mid 50s. The girls woke up to 36 degree weather the next morning. So um, it was a challenge to keep them warm. We had hot chocolate for them and my husband brought this industrial heater. So he is a brick and stone mason. And in the wintertime, they have to tent buildings because the masonry will not set up if it's less than 32 degrees. So they tent the building with plastic. They have this big diesel heater that they put in the building and then it keeps the temperature above 32 degrees. So he threw that diesel heater in for girls camp. And um, we weren't in an enclosed building. It was an open, uh, we had a pavilion that was open and he, he, he uh, put the heater down at the end of the picnic tables and ran it down between the line of picnic tables. So the girls could sit on the benches for the picnic tables and huddle around the heater, which actually I think helped make them bond. So the heater was named Mr. Heater and Mr. Heater might've been the hero of girls camp. (laughs) That's awesome. Wow. What a a wild experience though. I, I'm not really a a fan of camping at this Uh point. I liked it when I was younger. You know, it was more fun. Yeah. Um, But I can't can't imagine waking up in 36 degree weather. I would just, I wouldn't be able to sleep. Props props to them for, you know, enduring that. And uh, that's what I say, because this is now true confession time. The girls and the leaders might've been sleeping in tents. Tiffany might've took her motor home up there. You know, whatever you got to do to survive. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I'm the camp cook. My husband's the camp cook. You got to have your camp cook well rested and in a good mood so you have good food. Because as I like to say, if you if you feed them good food and you keep their stomachs happy, you have solved literally 50% of your girls camp problems right there if their stomachs are happy. So anyway, so yeah, I, I, I might have slept in my motorhome with the heater on for three nights when I was up there. And I don't feel guilty about it. 
So I'm with you, Hannah. I am not. My husband is a big camper. In fact, he even said, oh, we should take a tent. And I said, hey, you are more than welcome to take a tent and sleep out there in a tent. But this this girlfriend is not doing that. <laughs> so <laughs> I can appreciate your non-camping very much. So. All right. Well, let's just get into some questions. Let's just start with some background for our listeners who don't know much about you. You did hint that you grew up in New England. So let's start with what state you grew up in and and how it is your family ended up in New England. That's a it's a bit of an unusual place to find a lot of members of the church. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I was born in Massachusetts and that's where I lived. Um, until I went to BYU. Okay. Um, I actually did do a year of college at the College of the Holy Cross, which is a Catholic college there. Um, and you know, my, I've told I've told a bit about my conversion story elsewhere. It wasn't particularly uh-huh. linear. Um, but my my family, um, most of my family is not are not members of the church. Okay. Most of my family are uh, Catholic or um, Lutheran or agnostic, um, but definitely a lot of Catholic heritage. Um, and in terms of how we ended up in Massachusetts, um, I- I've had a family live in that area for a while now. So we've just been there. And um, it's a really fun area. It's definitely very different than Utah. Um, but I-, I love things about both areas. Okay, well, I did not realize you were a convert, and I am unfamiliar with your conversion story. Would you mind just taking a few minutes and sharing that? Sure. So the, the short the short version of it um, is I was baptized Catholic as a baby. Um, my parents um, split, and then my mom started looking into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh-huh. Um, and then when I was eight, I took missionary lessons from the missionaries. Um, and then I was baptized and then growing up, um, I'd say, you know, I sometimes went to church. I also went to other churches on occasion. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure, um, what type of religious relationship I wanted. Um, and I, when I got older, um, when I started attending Holy Cross at that time in my life, I was very much, um, thinking I was just going to be Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had kind of um, come to that conclusion and I, I a lot of things just changed for me. And I, I decided, no, you know, I, I want to be a member of the church. So I never like officially left the church or anything. Yeah. Um, I did attend Catholic mass for a while and think that that was going to be my path. Um, but after reading the Book of Mormon, when I was in college. Um, I just had a really strong spiritual experience with that and then decided to become a member. Well, not become, but, you know, be be, be a member of the church. So that's what I mean when I say it's not linear because yeah, I did yeah. join when I was younger. Yeah. I did attend church growing up, but just had, you know, a, a period of religious exploration. Yeah. You know, and I don't think that's unusual. And I think that many people today uh, who who maybe, you know, are baptized when they are younger, then as they get older and as they develop, have to decide for themselves, just like you did. Is this where I want to stay? Or do I feel like I need to go somewhere else and, and kind of, in a way, reconvert and decide, just like what you said, where they're going to land. So... Anyway, so you 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 do a year of Catholic college, and then you head off to BYU. I cannot think of a more um, kind of diverse 
uh, both ends of the spectrum thing. So, and, and having grown up in Massachusetts, I am I am dying to know what you thought when you landed in Provo, Utah. Yeah. So um, when I when I landed in Provo, Utah, I had been to Utah before a couple of times, but really just the Salt Lake area. I had never been to Provo. Um, when I came to to BYU, I had picked my housing online. I had no idea about, about anything. I wasn't sure how this whole thing was going to work. I just I honestly just felt really prompted to go to BYU, and I think that's for several reasons. I think. My like my formative experiences at BYU really did solidify my. I, I guess you could call it a reconversion. I don't. Uh-huh. I never know how to say it because I'll say I'm a convert and people will say no, you're not, and then I'll say you know I'm not a convert and then people will say yes, you are. So I like the term reconversion. I think that works. reconversion good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I got I got off the plane and I I remember um, thinking everything is really flat, and um, there were some positives to it for me where I saw that people dressed like I did. I've always sort of worn the floral dresses with the cardigans. Uh So I I got to Utah and I was like, okay, awesome. (laughs) Like my sense of style, very appropriate here. Um, But there were definitely some things that were (laughs) difficult for me to adjust to. Um, I'd say dating culture is the biggest one Mm -hmm. because, you know, I'm 24. I'm not married. And I, I believe strongly in you know, getting married and starting a family. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I guess, you know, my the, the norm of dating quickly was one that I was unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. And one that was kind of, that was a bit of an adjustment for me to, you know, because I, I don't know, that's just not really my personality. And I'm glad it works for other people. But being in that environment, <laughs> I was thinking, you know, this just isn't really what I'm used to. I, I watched yeah. people, you know, to have three or four year long engagements. Then I got here. And I saw people get married within three months. And I think, you know, that's great. That's, I'm really happy for them. Um, but that was personally um, a little bit tricky for me. Um, but I've really grown to love Utah, honestly. Very different than where I'm from um, in, in pretty much every way possible. Catholicism is also different, too. Um, but I do find a lot of similarities. Um, I find that there's a lot of the strong community similarities. Um, I find that people everywhere you go are just kind and loving in, in a lot of different ways. And there's always a sense of hospitality. So, you know, it, it's sort of a mixed bag, but it's been a great, great experience. That is awesome. Do you have thoughts on Utah drivers? <laughs> there are oh, many yeah, people um, who have thoughts on Utah drivers. <laughs> I, I, the, the one time that I said something funny, it got on BYU memes. This is the only oh. time I've ever really made a joke. And I said, I wish that the drivers on I-15 would follow Jesus as closely as they follow me. And I, I was, I, at the time I was, I was just kind of in a, a little bit of a bad mood because I have been just a little bit, I, I don't know. I'm a little bit of a slow driver. Um, which I don't think is a sin, but I, I I like going the speed limit, if not a little bit lower. And a lot of cars here don't like that. And they like going fast. And so Uh, there is a tension between me and them where I will often have people drive really close behind me. And so I, you know, I was in a bad mood because that kept happening on the highway. So I went home and I was thinking, you know what, I'm just gonna make a joke out of it. So I guess I do have thoughts on Utah drivers. Um, I would, 
I would just hope that we could slow slow down a little bit sometimes. <laughs> That's hilarious that you say that because I went to school at BYU too. And I remember when the transition, when I would come home every summer, because Idaho drivers tend to pretty much drive the speed limit. And I'd be like, why is everybody here driving so slow? Because I was used to the fast driving. And then I would readjust and then I'd go back to Utah. And I'm like, why are you driving so fast? Why are you in a hurry? <laughs> All right. So tell us, what did you major in at BYU? Yeah. So I did not major in journalism. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's always the that's always the first way to put it. Um, I studied ancient languages. And okay. I really liked it. Um, part of the reason I did it is I always have had an interest in the Bible. And so that was that was my main focus. It's the same thing that I did my graduate degree into. Um, and I had zero plans of ever becoming a journalist. Um, okay. And I have never taken a single journalism class. So, okay. you know, very it's different. Hilarious. <laughs> what, yeah, I just I just love I love hearing different people's perspectives. And I think mm -hmm. one of the interesting things about studying ancient people is you really learn that you can't you can't be judgmental towards mm -hmm. them because they, they've gone on their their past right you're dealing with a civilization that's completely completely over you can't you can't talk to them yeah. um, and I think for me like the the biggest thing that I gained was trying to put aside my own you know initial reactions to things and think you know. These people who are different than me have a lot in common with me. These people who are different than me are better than I am at some things. Um, and, you know, it's not always it's not always that they're worse um, at things than we are. And I think that's true of all people. Um, so I, it was a really interesting uh, thing for me to study for that reason. So do you often think when you're when you're studying these ancient cultures. You know, we are viewing and, and funneling those ancient cultures through obviously a very different lens, you know, a modern day lens of things that we know that they never knew. How, how does that impact you when you are, when you're studying these ancient cultures? Well, I, I think, you know, of, of course there are things that we have advanced on. Um, but I also think, a lot of our advancements are rooted in things that they taught us. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it always kind of comes back to that, right? Because I think we have a tendency to see ancient cultures as quote unquote primitive. Mm -hmm. And I think we can sometimes apply that same sort of lens to modern cultures that we don't see as, as technologically advanced as we are. Right. Mm -hmm. And then for me, the really interesting thing to do has been, okay, what if I take a step back and what if I ask in what ways were they advanced as opposed to in what ways are we advanced and they're not? And I've discovered that there's so much depth, especially when it comes to human relationships and human nature in ancient cultures. And so the impact on me has really been profound where I feel like, um, I, I feel like when I look back at the past and I look at the present, I'm, able to offer a lot more grace to both because wow. of, of thinking about, you know, those things. And of course, like, like everyone, like I, I fall short in doing that. Um, but I, I do think there is, there's something to be said about thinking about how, you know, even though now we have this modern plumbing system, the ancient Romans had something like that. 
even now that we have modern medicine, uh, there's a beautiful tradition of indigenous medicine mm-hmm. that really worked for their people. And um, I, I don't know. I just think, I think if we're thinking about how advanced we are, we miss out on the innovations that other people have done. I love that. I absolutely love that. So let's figure out now how you got from ancient cultures to being a staff writer for the Deseret News, (laughs) because that is probably not a logical jump that you would think you would end up there. (laughs) So how did that happen? (laughs) Well, so, you know, I've, once I got at BYU, I started doing all sorts of things related to church history. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been part of my background, too, where, um, you know, I was research assistant at the Maxwell Institute, done things like that. Um, and so I was in this space um, before graduation. It was it was well before graduation, actually, where I graduation with my graduate degree because I went straight from undergrad to graduate school. Mm-hmm. But um, so I didn't really have to figure it out then. But I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had thought for a long time I was going to become a professor and that seemed to me to be the only path for me. Um, but I also, I I didn't know if that's what I wanted because there are a lot of fantastic professors who have impacted my life and impacted Mm -hmm. other people's lives. I also was a little bit wary of becoming a professor because a lot of it is removed from people, right? There's long periods of time that you do just do research. And as I've gotten older, I I think I've realized, you know, people really are the most important thing. And it's really important for me to make a demonstrable impact in people's lives. And I think professors do that in a lot of really important ways I just wasn't sure if that was the way that I wanted to make an impact. So I was in this space where I was, you know, trying to figure out <laughs> what the heck should I do? Um, and I had, I had no ideas at this point. And I thought, you know, I, at the time I had, I had a job that I could continue that was in you know, researching church history that I could just continue after graduation. And I thought, you know, I could just go down that path. And, you know, maybe, maybe think of something along the way. And that was going, that was my plan for a while. And then um, an editor at Desert News reached out to me and said, hey, would you be interested? Now, and did you, did you know him or how, how is it that he's like, hey, let's call Hannah? I mean, I, I kind of knew him. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I, had, I had emailed him about an article that I had written for Public Square Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the extent really of my interactions. Um, And so it it was pretty, it was pretty much a cold call for me. And um, I, I said, he said, we're going to post the job. You can apply, see what happens. And so I applied, I got the job. And then um, (laughs) I, I I won't say who it is uh, because I I don't have their permission. I, I had a conversation with, um, right when I got the job offer, um, I, you know, the customary 24 hours to accept. Yeah. Um, Perchance, I think it was God's timing. I had a conversation planned with um, really just like a pioneer of Latter-day Saint slash Mormon studies, 
um, who I really admire. And I, I was supposed to talk to him about something else. And I, I did bring up, you know, at, at the end of the conversation, I, I brought up my future and, and he gave me some advice. Um, and, and he talked a lot about the importance of being a Latter-day Saint while being a voice and how mm-hmm. it's not necessary for me to um, just do Latter-day Saint studies, that I could do other things too. And um, as silly as it sounds, I hadn't given myself permission to think in that way. Uh-huh. I had thought this is the only thing that I can do because it's either this or my very obscure degree. <laughs> um, I, I mean, honestly, like, you know, both are kind of obscure fields. So like, you know, you know, it's not, they're, they're both, they're both small fields. And so I left that conversation thinking, you know, I just got to take the chance. Cause I, I honestly was pretty nervous when I, when I took mm-hmm. the job and when I, frankly, when I got the job offer, I was really nervous. Um, and then I decided to accept it. And um, like we say, the rest is history and I absolutely love it. So it worked out. Okay. So, so I just, I have kind of a follow-up question. So when this editor from Deseret News calls you and says, Hey, we're posting this job, you know, think about applying. What, what initially intrigued you to go, sure, why not? Uh, I'll apply there. Was there something that initially intrigued you because it was just so out of kind of left field, so to speak. Yeah, there are two people who I can I can name: McKay okay. Poppins, okay, and Elizabeth Brunig, and they're wow. both writers at the Atlantic for James. Uh-huh. Yes, um, <laughs> I have followed their work for a long time, and one of the things I like about both McKay and Elizabeth is I think that they're both very conscientious and compassionate individuals, mm-hmm. and one of the things that. I think is really important when you work in media is to be a truth teller, right? You want to tell the truth, but you also want to um, share light with people, right? Like you, you, you want to make sure that what you're sharing is true and what you're sharing is important, impactful. Um, And for me, they really embodied that where I, I didn't, even when they've written things, that are tragic, right? They've written about tragedies. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth writes, of course, about um, victims of the death penalty, uh, of death penalty executions. Um, and, and for me, death is a very tragic thing. Um, and so even when they've written about these difficult subjects, I, I felt something in their writing that to me was this almost indescribable quality of humanity. And I thought to myself, that might be the the sort of thing that I'm missing in my life is that that ability to connect with humanity. And so, you know, I'm I'm probably never gonna be even close to the stature of either one of them. Um they're both, you know, eons ahead of me and that's totally fine. Um they're also just, a lot older something. than you. <laughs> I, I saw something um in them though that I wanted to develop in myself. And so I thought, you know, this is a this is an opportunity along my path where God will help me to become the person that I want to become. I think in my life something that I, has been really important for me has been looking at the opportunities in front of me and and trusting that God put them there. 
And then I like taking that. that leap. I love that. Okay, so what does a day in the life of a staff writer for the Deseret News look like? Kind of, kind of walk us through your day. What, what happens? Deadlines, how this all works, how you get assigned story ideas. I'm just very, very curious about this. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about this. Um, I, I, I'd say you know everyone's day is different. So this is just you know my my day, and I'm sure that people here and at other publications have different days. Um, one of the first things I do when I wake up is I immediately read my scriptures. And that, that to me is honestly really important because I think you, I think everyone who works in a job where, you know, it's a little more time consuming sometimes needs to have that like a habit or a routine that's something for themselves. And for me, that has always been something that provides peace to my soul and also provides me clarity of mind. And so after I do that, um, I typically go onto Apple News um, and scroll through whatever is there. Um, I start going to my favorite, uh, you know, news outlet. So for me, I, I love the Atlantic, if that wasn't clear, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> the Atlantic is one of my favorite publications, excluding my own. Um, and so I go to the Atlantic, I go to, um, religion news service, I go to NPR, uh, New York times, um, some local, some no- local news outlets too. I still read the Boston globe. Um, uh-huh. as well. Uh, I, I don't think I'll ever stop. Um, CNBC, I, I just, I, I look around and I think, okay, here's what's going on in the world. Here are some things that I can consider writing about. And then, um, something that I do is, um, I read the news at home, I drive to work and then I try to spend a little bit of time outside because mm-hmm. one of the things that I think is important to me is to be in touch with people, if that makes sense, right? Like I'm interested in thinking how how does a new story impact someone's life? What's something that someone might worry about when they read a new story that I could address, right? So like a pretty simple example is, you know, extreme heat, right? Um, there's obviously a lot of extreme heat right now. And I was thinking, what are the types of questions people ask when there's extreme heat? And one of them that came to mind that a couple of my friends had mentioned to me is, you know, what do you cook when it's extremely hot outside and you're just feeling really lethargic? And I thought, you know, that's, that to me is a great story. So I wrote it and we published it. Um, <laughs> and so, um, things like that, um, in terms of, you know, every day is different. So I'd say most days, um, are, are pretty similar in the sense that I sometimes have interviews for stories that I'm working on, um, typically over the phone, sometimes in person. Um, so I'll do those. And um, I, I read a lot, a lot honestly, um, and just try to think of like interesting ways to tell stories about what's going on that are true mm-hmm. and that provide light. Um, and then other days, you know, other days can be a little bit wilder. Like sometimes I'll have events. Um, I'll tell a, a quick story. Um, okay. I think it might be a um, you know, I, I went uh, in May to the set of The Chosen. And so um, I had to fly to Texas. Um, I did press interviews all day. It was honestly a pretty long day. I was doing interviews from about noon to like 1130 mm-hmm. at night, Texas time. Um, and so when yeah. I got back to my hotel, I was really tired <laughs> because I was flying from Utah and then uh, woke up the next morning for 
a, a nice 7 a.m. interview call and um, did more interviews, then came back that day to Utah. Next day, I just wrote up all those interviews and I, I transcribed them. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of things like that where you transcribe, um, interviews, but I'd say from around 10 30 to 11 until five, sometimes six, um, sometimes later than that too. It just depends on the day. Um, that's really when I, I start writing. Um, and I like to, um, I like to write the stories that are hardest for me to write last and the ones that are easiest mm-hmm. for me to write first, which is in fact the reverse of most advice that you'll ever get. Yes. Um, but for me, um, tackling the, the hardest um, part of my day when it comes to writing first has, has helped me to try to think through those problems. And then, um, you know, my day ends kind of, but um, I try after work to, you know, um, to look at my own life and to look at the lives of the people in my circle and come up with ideas. So I, I, I try to always be thinking in that way. So do you have an editor that ever assigns you stories and say, Hannah, we'd like a story on this? Or are you pretty much coming up with your own story ideas? Or is it maybe a little mixture of both? It's a mix. Um, I'd say most of my stories I come up with, I do get some assignments from time to time. Um, but, uh-huh. you know, it's always a, it's always a conversation. Um, I, I'd say a lot of people just give me ideas, too. That's the nice thing about, you know, because I, I actually physically go to the office. Um, every day. And that's a, that's a decision I made because, um, I think there's a lot of good things that can be gained by just having conversations with people and having conversations with my colleagues has given me a lot of really good ideas, honestly, um, that I don't think I would have come up on my own. So it is a mixture. Um, and you know, I work with a few people, um, here that have great ideas and that give me great advice. So do you have like any sort of quota, like you need to do X number of stories a day, or does it just kind of depend on, you know, oh, this is a short story. I can do two or three of those. This is more in depth. That's going to take me longer and more time. How does that all work? It's pretty flexible. I'd say, um, I'm on what's called the trending team. Um, and we write uh-huh. trending news. So I end up writing a couple stories a day and I'm always working on big projects. So um, I, I'd say, you know, my average, my, I, I probably average about, uh, two stories a day, a day these days. There have been previous months where I've written way more. There's also been previous months where I've written way less. So it, it really honestly just depends on the story. Okay. Now you, you mentioned you still read the Boston Globe and that kind of brings me to just kind of the shift that newspapers have seen in the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, you, you are very young compared to me. I am, I am twice your age (laughs) and I grew up with a daily newspaper delivery to my house. Uh, We received a paper in the morning and we received a paper in the evening from two different competing newspapers here in the Boise area. And my parents would pour over those papers. I saw them reading the newspaper as a teenager. I physically read the newspaper. 
I continued to do that through college and post college. I, when I lived in Utah, I had a subscription to the Deseret News. And then it seems like a big shift occurred about 15 years ago that it kind of trended away from the print media into more the digital media. And I quit subscribing to the, to the physical newspaper. And now much like you, the first thing I do in the morning is I'm like, Let's click on the Deseret News. Let's click on the Idaho Press, uh, you know, to get my news. So have have you seen, I, I don't know if, if you're too young to have seen or understood that trend because you've kind of maybe been aware of this more. It's always been a digital world for you. But I'm, I'm guessing you work with old timers who were like, oh, back in my day. <laughs> what are your thoughts yeah. on that? <laughs> Yeah, so um, I, I am a little bit too young to appreciate the shift uh-huh. fully. I will say, um, I, I do remember, um, I you know, I've been a, an Atlantic subscriber for a while, and I remember getting the physical copies of the magazine when I was in high school and middle school, and thumbing through it and writing in the margins. Um, and you know, I I don't get the physical copy anymore, but this conversation is making me think I should. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> I, I haven't been able to see the shift, but I have talked to people about the shift because it's an interesting one, right? When you're working on a deadline for a story now, mm-hmm. I, I I almost think it's it's still as imminent in the sense of you still really need to finish the story by the deadline. But because you're not like constrained by how many inches you can take up in a column, word count, like do you have to be thinking, I think they're called dangling widows too, with the, the way that a word ends on a page, uh-huh. right? You're not thinking about those things um, it, with the same sort of, um, I, I guess, precision, right? Like you have to think about word count and be realistic about that. But it, it is a really different shift. Um, and I think, too, it's it also might impact pace. I think, you know, newspapers, media, very fast-paced. Um, my job, I'd say, is fast-paced. And when I talk to people who used to work just doing print, they say, think of fast paced, but adding all this additional stress of, you know, how am I going to finish making sure that this column is the, the perfect space within a paper? And so I think that that's definitely part of it. I think also the shift from um, print to online, um, you know, one of the things that um, has changed is local news, of course. So I still read Boston Globe, like I mentioned. I actually do try to read a lot of local news, too, for for one reason and one reason only, besides the fact that I like reading the news, which is apparent. Um, I want to make sure that the local news still has readers, too. So that's been, I think, a really interesting shift. I see a lot of local papers closing down, not necessarily um, in the area where I live. I think there's a thriving um, local news presence um, but there, there are definitely areas where you're seeing fewer and fewer, um, local news outlets too. And I think that that has definitely been part of that, that shift from print to online, because if everything's online, you don't feel that sort of need to subscribe to a paper. And when it comes to local papers, subscriptions really, really, really yeah. help. So let me ask you this. Do you consider yourself part of Generation Z? If you were to classify yourself as to what generation category you fall into. Yeah. So, or okay. do you consider yourself I, I more a millennial? Question. 
Okay. Yeah. So I think this is a fun question. I am I technically Gen Z by the definition of Gen Z? Yes. But I I feel like I'm kind of a boomer. Um, okay. And I mean this in like the oh, best possible way. Very interesting answer. Okay. I know. I know. That's why I gave it. I I I love just you know drinking my herbal tea, reading books. Like I, I don't know. Like I, I I love the digital world. Don't get me wrong. But yes, I I do like letter writing and and I have a typewriter and I I like doing things like that. So you know I am Gen Z, but am I Gen Z? I don't know. I'm like retro Gen Z, I guess. Retro Gen Z. Oh, I love that. I may drop that on on one of my legal secretaries at my office, who's who's borderline <laughs> millennial Gen Z. So yeah. you know, I I you know. What do you think that the news media is doing these days to encourage specifically millennials and Gen Z to engage in the news? Because they're, they've grown up in a very different news world than the news world that I grew up in. And the news world that it sounds like maybe you wanted to grow up in. Yeah. Um, I think right now we're seeing uh, really quick news cycles, right? I think that's been pretty apparent where um, the news constantly changes and it changes really fast. And we're all aware of those changes. Um, and I've thought a lot about that because that's been my reality for as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. But I also think, you know, that always hasn't, that hasn't always been the reality where people knew um, sort of like very specific details about things that occurred as soon as they occurred, basically, yeah. um, with the way that media is able to get stories out. So I think, I think that the way that um, Gen Z millennials are engaging with news right now has a lot to do with social, social media. I think we're seeing like TikTok, um, Twitter, Instagram, but especially, especially TikTok becoming uh, more uh, important sources for, for Gen Z and millennials. And I actually, um, I will say I, I did write an article um, with one of my colleagues, Jitanjali about how um TikTok and misinformation sort of work together yeah. with 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 the news, right? Like there is a cer- certain percentage. Um, it's hard to quantify, of course, of information on TikTok that's presented as news that is actually misinformation. And so I, I think it's it's an interesting space. Um, there's always been uh, quote unquote misinformation, um, not always due to malice, right? Like sometimes people will get things wrong, will have limited information, right? It's a it's a tricky tricky thing. It's not always, you know, it's not always intentional. And so I think right now, because we're seeing this, uh, this almost, I don't want to say surplus, this large amount of information um, available on the news, we're seeing that there's this grappling of younger generations of, you know, asking questions of how do I know what it's true? How do I know what has slant? How do I know um, what sources I should be reading um and how do i interrogate my own bias which i think is a really interesting conversation a very interesting conversation and again not conversations i ever grew up having because i would read you know the print journalism or television journalism and and it was even before i mean i remember journalism before print or television would even get into editorializing on uh, in 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 journalism, and it was really just the facts, 
and, and it was a trusted source. And, and yeah, I think with, you know, with social media, especially with TikTok, again, it, it everything that you look at, you have to filter it through, is this truth, you know, or is it, or is it partial truth or kernels of truth and what's true and what's not? And it's a lot. It really is a lot. Oh, so, it's a lot. Do- and, and like you said, too, right, with the kernels of truth, sometimes we don't have access to the information we need to fact check things. Yeah. Right. When it when yeah. we're being consumers of of the news, which is another um, I think that's always been true, though, just to be clear, like mm-hmm. I, I do think um, it's difficult. That That's always been a difficult enterprise. Yeah. But I think right now, because we're just seeing so much information, it can be a, a little bit more of a daunting task. Yeah. So do you have a favorite story that you have written or something that stands out to you that you're like, I'm really proud of that, or that was super fun to work on, or anything along that line? Yeah. I mean, honestly, there's been quite a few that I think have uh-huh. been really impactful. Um, so I, I'm going to I'm gonna share a couple. Okay, um, so oh, one good. of the first stories that I, I ever started working on um, the headline is who is the real Brenda Wright Lafferty, what we miss when mm-hmm. we don't ask. And this was during under the banner of heaven. And yes, you know, um, I-, I could sense a lot of hurt from the family when that, from, from Brenda's family when that came out, because Brenda's sister, Sharon started immediately speaking about how she f- felt like Brenda was misportrayed. And, you know, there was also hurt on the part of Latter-day Saints. And when I was thinking, what can I write that is true and that adds light, the idea kept coming back to me of, I need to write about Brenda. (laughs) And so this was a really, it was a really emotional story for me to write. I actually, I'll just read the paragraph that. Okay. In modern society, this is not unusual. Speaking about how um, the victim of a murder is forgotten. Victims of murders are rarely spoken of outside of their murders. They become lost. They deserve better. Brenda deserves better. For But for whatever reason, society has accepted this phenomenon and not questioned what this says about us. I recognized this phenomenon when I began preparing to write about Under the Banner of Heaven an FX drama that aired its final episode this week. I wanted to understand the ins and outs of the case, so I did all the research that I could and realized that many of my questions about Brenda were unanswered because most of what has been written about her is her murder and the events leading up to it. So I started to talk. So I started talking to the people that knew Brenda. From those conversations, this is her story. And I then go on to quote from her sisters about who she was, um, what she liked, what she was like as a kid, um, what she was like in high school. And um, all. And I got to use some of her family photos in the story too. And for me, this was, it was one of the most impactful stories that I wrote because I just realized that when we're talking about people who have been murdered, we often know so much about the murderer, but nothing about the victim. And I, I grew in a real way to love Brenda. Um, wow. And so that was, that was just a, it was one of my first stories too that I wrote for Desert wow. News. And so that was just a really 
I, indescribable story to write. Yeah. Um, another story that I thought that was um, really, um, again, one of those, one of those stories that just, just hit me uh, was I did a Q and a with Molly Bonner um, of the Bonner family. And um, you know, Molly is just this, such a bright, optimistic, um, friendly individual. Um, and so for, for those listeners who may not know who this is or what this is about, could you just give a brief overview? Yeah, sure. So the Bonner family, um, they, Harry and Deborah Bonner, um, are converts to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And their whole family has this beautiful choir where they sing songs together. Um, okay. it's gospel music and, uh, Deborah runs the gospel unity choir. Um, so Molly, okay. um, he made the movie, his name is Green Flake. Um, Green Flake, of course, um, is a black pioneer who, um, there was a monument built for him. And I was writing this interview with Molly Bonner in conjunction uh, with this monument. And Molly is himself black. And he spoke about the importance of learning and understanding uh, black history, especially black Latter-day Saint history. And one of the things that was really important for me about the story was I think what Molly was saying was we need to be active in seeking out these stories and it's our responsibility to find them and to uh, preserve them and tell them. And it, it was one of those things where it was inspirational for me too, personally. Um, But I also thought it was just an important conversation that needed to happen. And and I thought people um, could really learn a lot from it. Um, And then the last story that I'll mention um, that was particularly impactful for me was um, I read a story about Joseph Smith and religious freedom. Um, I've actually written two, but the specific one I'm thinking uh-huh. about um, was I published it um, on Joseph Smith's birthday. Um, so it was called uh, Joseph Smith was on the frontier for the fight for religious freedom. And um, this was a, again, this was one of those intimidating stories where, um, there's a lot of information <laughs> about that and yeah. it's been written about a few times. And I thought, how can I write about this for a general audience, um, in a way that speaks to, um, what was happening during his time, but also speaks to how it's applicable, um, now. And, uh, one of the interesting interviews that made it into the piece, um, was from Katrina Lanto Sweat, who, um, has done just so much for international uh, religious freedom. She runs uh, she runs a foundation named after uh, her father, Tom Lantos, who is a Holocaust survivor. And she's been an advocate for religious freedom internationally um, for, for many, many years. And um, I actually got to profile her as one of my first stories for Deseret News. And this was my second conversation with her. I called her back up and I said, hey, I'm writing this story. What can you what can you tell me? Um, and she said something that really struck me. There are an increasing number of places in the world where religious freedom is very significantly hampered. And in some cases, you know, just egregiously trampled upon. And 
later I had another conversation with her that made it into an, a, a more recent article about Justice mm-hmm. Smith, where she talked about some instances of people who were killed for the religious beliefs internationally. So there were um, some Ahmadi Muslims who were killed um, internationally for for what they believed. And I thought, again, like this is another example of stories that are very tragic that I think yes. once they're in our minds, there is there it's, it's, it's important information for us to think about and to think about what types, and I get into policy a little bit, but what types of policy um, would help people who are in these dire circumstances. And so um, a couple of those stories were actually uh, what we call perspective pieces, which are, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, similar ish to an opinion piece. But I I, I do think there's interesting um, things that came from those stories. And there's stories that I'm, I'm really proud of. I I like all three of those. And if you will send me the link to all three of those, we're going to link those in our show notes so that anybody listening who wants to go read those stories can go read those stories because um, those stories I don't think have an expiration date as many stories in the news do. But it doesn't appear to me that any of those stories have a quote unquote expiration date and are probably just as relevant as as when you wrote them. So. Um, let's, uh, let me ask you this fan mail, hate mail. Do you get a lot of fan mail, hate mail, anything you are willing to share? Because, you know, we, Ariane and I always talk about, uh, you know, when there's, when there's stories on Facebook that are controversial, we will go down the rabbit hole of reading the Facebook comments. Uh, and, and I probably don't have to tell you what the rabbit hole of reading Facebook comments looks like. So I'm just curious what kind of feedback you have received on the type of work that you do. I'm not for everyone. Um, and I think that's been something really important for me to understand. And I, uh-huh. I, I'm also not trying to be for everyone. Um, uh-huh. There, there was a time where I would read both fan mail and hate mail. I'll, I'll say I, I I encounter a lot more positivity than I do negativity. Yes. Um, One of the things that I've realized is, you know, a lot of the time when I've received criticism, um, there has been, I think, some truth to it. There are plenty of instances where that's not Mm -hmm. true, but there are instances where that is true. And I need to change as a person in some ways, like we all need to change. And so for me, um, I have, stopped reading mm-hmm. um fan mail and hate mail um fan mail if it's sent directly to me i'll respond typically yeah but i don't really i try not to read the comments um purely because i want to change into a more compassionate charitable person mm-hmm. um charitable to everyone right to to not to not esteem anyone as greater than anyone else like i want that that personal journey of mine to be my own. Um, And I want my journey to be a walk between me and Christ. And I think when, when I make mistakes um, as I have made many, um, I am young too. So that's also (laughs) part of it. Um, When I've made mistakes, I, I feel like I've sometimes let criticism dictate how I feel about myself and of what mm-hmm. praise dictate how I feel about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but the conclusion that I've come to is that 
I am surrounded by a group of really great people in my life. I have great family members, great friends. And when I do make mistakes, they'll gently tell me like, hey, you could have done this better. And when I do things well, they'll say, hey, great job. And for me, that is the sort of um, space that I would rather exist in rather than um, thinking about, about, you know, what people say to me. Because also, um, I think a lot of the time when someone criticizes um, work in a way, you know, there's, there's of course fair criticism. Um, and I think a fair criticism, I'm always happy to respond to, but I, like when we're talking about the sort of, um, I guess like more ad hominem type criticism, um, for me, I, I think if I had the chance to talk to that person in person and sit down and break bread with them and have a conversation, I'd be willing to do that. Um, seeing it on the internet and then responding to it on the internet doesn't seem to be, um, I haven't seen a lot of productive things come out of that. Um, but I, I'd say on the whole, um, I feel like there's been a lot of positivity and I appreciate, um, everyone who reads my work, whether they love it or they hate it, I appreciate (laughs) their considering it. And I, I genuinely mean that because, Uh uh, I really appreciate when people tell me, um, you know, I really disagreed with this piece. Um, I've had someone, I had someone email me, actually, I'll use a specific example. I had someone email me just saying, like, I disagreed with everything that you said in this piece. And they, they they went on to tell me all the things that they found that were wrong with it. But then at the end, they said something that I just really appreciated. They said that they could not find a single instance where I put down um, their views or people's views who are different than my own. They said the entire thing they thought was fair, even though they disagreed with it. Yeah. And for me, that was a, that was a a really great moment. It was. And it was, I had a great conversation with that person actually. And you know, that person that I now stay in touch too. So I I just think, you know, there are also moments like that where um, when people do disagree with me, it's been a positive experience. Awesome. I love that. Okay. Well, before we close out and move on to my favorite things, we have to talk about something that is in your bio on the DNews website. (laughs) You claim to be a connoisseur of funeral potatoes. So we cannot end this episode without having a conversation about funeral potatoes. So tell me, did you grow up with funeral potatoes or was this something you were introduced to upon moving to Utah? And, and how is it that you consider yourself to be a connoisseur? And then yeah. you and I could talk about the contents of funeral potatoes and what makes a good potato versus a bad potato. Okay. So this is a, this is a great thing. I did not eat funeral potatoes growing up. I did not know what a funeral potato was. You know, I've eaten scalloped, I've eaten au gratin, I've eaten all I've eaten baked potatoes, french fries, I've eaten a whole a whole gambit of of potatoes. I got to Utah and I remember being in one of my friends' apartments. We we're heading down to a ward party and he said there's going to be funeral potatoes. And I looked oh, at gosh. him and I said, "What on earth?" And I walked up to the batch and I scooped them onto my plate. I took one bite of them and I thought internally, I did not say it out loud. I thought, I don't like this. 
Um, to me, it was dairy overload and I just wasn't used to the taste. And then um, one of my friends told me for his birthday, he really wanted me to make him funeral potatoes. So I thought, okay, I did not enjoy my first experience with these. I need to make the ultimate funeral potatoes. So I did a ton Can of I? research and then I made them and I thought that they were slightly better, but they were still not great. Um, and so, okay. So, so let me, what, what did you put in these funeral potatoes? So you're trying to make the ultimate, I used vegan cheese. So that's probably the first, the first part of this that went wrong. Um, that's fair. (laughs) I I used to like vegan cheese. I don't know. Um, but I, I, the first time I made them, I made them incorrectly and I'm willing to admit that. Um, I chopped up the potatoes into little chunks I mixed in green onions, can uh-huh. of chickens, sorry, cream of chicken soup in a can. Okay. Um, sour cream, cheddar cheese, and then I crumpled up cornflakes with cheddar cheese and put it on top. Okay. So have you since revised your funeral potato recipe and how you oh, make them? Yes. Yes, I have. So I don't know how to, I don't know how to explain this other than like, I became sort of obsessed with funeral potatoes. Um, and I I try not judge. I will not judge for that obsession because I think potato in any form is, uh, is from God. (laughs) Yeah. I love potatoes. I think there's that Brigham Young quote about milk and potatoes. Yeah. Um, very, yeah. Anyways. And then you, you also have the AA Milne quote. What I say is this, that if a fellow really likes potatoes, he must be a pretty decent sort of fellow. So, you know, I can't argue I, with I, that. I, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I have changed my funeral potato recipe. I actually did release my funeral potato recipe to the public, too. So, Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So, so tell so us, what these, do you put in them? Yeah. So you do you use russet potatoes, obviously. And I boil them in a pot with salt and garlic powder. Okay. Then you shred them. Okay. I use a yellow onion, cloves of garlic. Um, I make my own butter. And then Mm. I saute the onions and the garlic. Mix in the potatoes. And then use cream of chicken soup. Sour cream. Two cups of sharp cheddar cheese. Okay. And then another half cup of sharp cheddar cheese with cornflakes put on the top. And I will say oh. I sometimes add bacon, but I understand that's unorthodox. <laughs> so have you gotten many compliments on this uh, this funeral potato recipe that you have curated? Yes, I have. Mostly, I think, because I do make my own butter for it. Like, when I make funeral potatoes, it's no longer um, just, you know, like a thing that I do. It's an experience. It's an event. Clearly, um, because so, that's a lot of work. It really is. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so I've gotten do you a make, lot of compliments on them. Do you make your own butter by, like, taking the whipping cream and whipping it until it's butter? How do you go about this making your own butter process? Oh, yeah. So I, I'm obsessed with making my own butter. It's partially because of butter boards, but the obsession okay. started before butter boards. Um, okay. I, I'll do the mason jar method where you put it, you put heavy whipping cream in a mason jar and you just shake it for mm-hmm. an absurdly long amount of time. Um, I will also use a KitchenAid mixer um, and just whip it. And then you use a cheesecloth, you drain it, you rinse it off. 
Um, uh-huh. Yeah, you can make it every which way. I love I love making butter. It's such an enjoyable thing for me. Wow, I had no idea. So I I am guessing based on what you're telling me that you would probably consider yourself a foodie because not many people oh, sure. have an obsession with making butter. <laughs> I oh, think yeah. you would no, have I'm to be a true foodie, foodie to do that. <laughs> I, I love I that. Love and making it, everything. And I love that. And that's, of course, how Ariane and I kind of stumbled onto you yeah. is, you know, we we had been covering your stories, but not really realizing it until we stumbled across the Essential Borman Cookbook. And I said to my sister, we're going to pick the worst recipes out of this book and we're going to make it a talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> I, I, I genuinely love all of the recipes in the book. I I know that I know that you said, like, you know, why didn't she pick the weird recipes? I like all the recipes, honestly. <laughs> like, I, I I did not think I would like Jello, right? So, like, Jello is uh-huh. the, the thing that I thought that I would be like averse to, um, mostly because I I just didn't really eat it growing up. Uh, yeah. And then I saw it, and I thought this is kind of jiggly. It looks a little bit weird to me, <laughs> but I've grown to just love it, and I just I just embrace it, right? I I there's very few things that I dislike uh, okay, when it comes well- to food. And that must be why you were able to embrace some of those odder recipes than Ariane and I, because Ariane and I have, um, um, I don't even know how to describe this. We have very strange, we call them food rules. Like we do not sure. mix our fruits and our meats. You know, I, I do not want to well, see pineapple on a pizza. That's offensive to me. And, and it's kind of funny because um, uh, I've got four siblings and she and I, food wise, pretty much like and hate the same things. And our other siblings, you know, so don't. And so it's so I'm not sure if it was necessarily just growing up or how we acquired that. But yeah, that's, that's probably why some of these stranger recipes in that book, we were like, are you kidding me? I, <laughs> so. I just love them all. I I don't know. I, for me, like, I just, I, I have like a, like an, like an attitude of fascination towards those things uh-huh. because I think if someone likes it, like what's redeeming, <laughs> what's redeeming about it, you know? And then I don't know, it, it was just an experience for me, but I love, I love the essential Mormon cookbook. I actually have the follow-up edition to the celebrations one. Yes. Um. So big fan of both. Awesome. Okay, well, I'm going to show you a picture of another cookbook here, since we are talking cookbooks. Um, oh, and I don't, I, I don't know if you, it's, it's going to be backwards for you. So this oh, yeah. is making a lady by making memories with Bev Tanner. Yeah, with Bev Tanner. Have you ever heard of Bev Tanner? I have not, but that looks like it came from DI. Like that looks like a DI okay. find to me. It, it is it is not a DI find. I'm going to give you a little background on Bev Tanner, and maybe you want to use this okay. as a story. Ariane and I have talked about um, about doing some of her recipes. So Bev Tanner is a woman who was here in Boise, Idaho, and it was probably in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, somehow or another, David Letterman, when he had his show on NBC, picked her up. And probably about once a year, she'd go out there and be on his show. And she, that woman could talk a mile a minute. And she would literally leave David Letterman speechless. And she was always um, 
every time she went out there, she was always uh, worked her way into families are forever. And she would always say that. And so she would go on his show and she would cook for him. And so you need to go on YouTube because on YouTube, they have a whole collection. It's about an hour long of all of her appearances on Letterman and you will just be rolling on the floor. So she wrote this little cookbook. And of course, everybody in Boise bought it because, you know, she was a Boise local, Boise native. And so my mother-in-law actually had this cookbook. And so after I did the podcast on the essential Mormon cookbook, uh, she, um, she said, Oh, I've got Bev Tanner's cookbook. So it's called making and make making and baking memories with Bev Tanner, David Letterman's mad baking lady recipes. I shared on his show. So anyway, go, I go. Look. I probably would love that cookbook. I'm going to find it. And I'm gonna. I'm gonna start cooking. Okay, go look for it. If you can't find it, you let me know, and I will photocopy it and send it to you. How does that sound? Too kind. Perfect. Thank you. Anyway, I think you'll love it because she has she has a whole bunch of very um, Mormon themed recipes in here, and she also in her cookbook incorporates a whole bunch of poetry. So there's poetry in her cookbook as well, and she has. Um, one recipe in here that we thought about trying it's um paper bag apple pie and so you cook your apple pie in a paper bag we thought oh that could be very very interesting so anyway that's my recommendation is go see if you can find bev tanner on youtube and then see what you could do about finding her cookbook and trying it out because uh she was kind of a big deal in the 90s i i believe she subsequently um passed away but uh she was in my husband's ward growing up so Kind of, kind of a fun, That's really fun connection there. Neat. I love that. So, all right. Well, I always like to end the show with talking about our favorite things. Uh, these, of course, are not things that we are receiving any money for or any paid endorsement. This is just what Ariane and I like. And so I asked you if you would participate and do your favorite thing. And so I'm going to let you go ahead and start and share your favorite thing. And then I will share my favorite thing. Okay. So um, the other day I wrote a story about Paddington Bear and it it was, um, you know, why he's a lovable bear or something like that. And then I decided I really wanted to go and find a little Paddington bear. And I found this adorable, tiny little Paddington bear on Amazon, shipped it to me, and I have not received it yet, but it is currently my favorite thing just because, um, I, I, (laughs) you know, Paddington bear to me is just kind of the epitome of kindness in so many ways of kindness and quirkiness with with the marmalade and just just so so much fun in a little bundle and it was just one of those things that I thought this is really fun and sweet and it it makes me happy oh I love that I love that well I am going to share a podcast that I stumbled across about a week ago I was out driving around last Saturday running some errands and I think it was I can't remember if it was radio lab or one of the NPR shows that was um doing a little segment and they reference this podcast called maintenance phase and it is all about debunking diet cultural myths and so I've listened to two or three episodes and it's just been fascinating like they talk about where the origins of 10,000 steps came from and do you really need 10,000 steps and you know is it is it 
you know, do you reach maximum productivity at 10,000 or before 10,000 or after 10,000? They debunk calories in, calories out. It's just a really interesting uh, podcast that makes you think about all of these things that in diet culture that you have heard all throughout your life. I will give one warning to this podcast. This podcast has language. And so if that is something you don't want, then this might not be the podcast for you. Um, There are some, it's not language all the time, but there is definitely some language that is dropped in this podcast. So I I always like to give our listeners a warning because some people that's, they're fine with some people, they, they would rather skip that. But like I said, um, fascinating podcast in debunking dieting myths. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. I, I, I have seen some interesting research lately too if, about, you know, is it 7,500 steps yeah. that you would do the same benefits as 10,000 steps? I find, I find all those things really fascinating. Exactly. And that's exactly what they were talking about was that really the studies show about 7,500 steps is, you know, where you reach your, your maximum productivity. And then anything after that is just extra. And, and I found it fascinating because I, I wear a Fitbit and I track my steps every day. Um, for, for medical reasons. I, a couple of years ago, I got a type two diabetes diagnosis. So I'm trying to be very careful of my, aware of my movement and how much I'm yeah. moving and um, just to kind of keep those things under check. So anyway, that was my recommendation for a podcast. Hannah, I have absolutely loved having you on tonight. I seriously could probably go on and talk to you for another two, three hours. I have so many questions. You've been a delightful guest. You've given uh, just really thoughtful insight into everything that we've discussed tonight. And so I just want to say thank you so much for coming on to our show. Thank you so much for writing great stories that we get to cover here on This Week in Mormons. We appreciate that. We will be continuing to cover your stories and link them in our show notes so that other people can go read them and listen to them. And so thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to thank the listeners too. And I, I hope you can bear with me. Uh, you know, the, the, the pen is mightier than the words that come out of my mouth. So <laughs> not always okay. the best speaker, but I appreciate the patience and the kindness. <laughs> oh, you've been wonderful tonight. Very articulate. So Twim Nation, uh, as always, you can find us on all the social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. Uh, Ariane and I have a Twim Sisters Instagram where we always post links to our favorite things. And so we will do that tonight as well. And then for anyone who wants to be a Patreon subscriber, please go on to Patreon uh, for three bucks a month. You can help us keep the lights out and our flights out. We don't want the lights to go out. You can help us keep the lights on. And we have started recently doing extra content for Patreon subscribers. So after we've wrapped up here, Hannah's going to stick around for a few more minutes and we're going to do some extra content for Patreon subscribers. So Twim Nation, thank you very much. We appreciate you listening.